Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, and welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is John McAdams, and I'll be your co-host for the session. I'm very happy to be here today with Kim Grossmoor. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Well, thank you so much for being part of our summit. I'm excited to speak with you and for our audience to learn about GRIP and about the Institute's work. I'm going to read a little bit of your bio to let our audience know uh, about you and your work, and then we'll get into the conversation. How does that sound? Great. Okay, good. Kim Grossmoor has contributed more than 20 years to making the San Francisco Bay Area a more just and equitable community. She is now the executive director of the GRIP Training Institute, whose mission is to create the personal and systemic change to turn violence and suffering into opportunities for learning and healing. Kim is endorsed as a Buddhist chaplain through the Insight Meditation Center of Redwood City, California. She is a strong believer of the community organizing principle, the first revolution is internal. The Guiding Rage into Power GRIP program currently takes incarcerated people in California state prisons through an intensive year-long mindfulness-based journey of trauma healing and accountability. In the last 10 years, more than 1,200 students have graduated from the program, 528 have been released, and their recidivism rate is less than 1%. Kim lives with her family in San Jose, California. Again, Kim, just wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for being with us. Great to be here. I'm happy to be part of the summit. Well, you know, there are a number of the aspects of the GRIP training and the GRIP training institute that I hope we can learn about from you today. Um, Hopefully we can get into the actual on-the-ground GRIP training, get some real kind of visual ideas of what does it look like to be in the room with these people and, and your facilitators as they go through the program. Um, I know that the tribe naming process is pretty powerful, and um, I've heard about it once before, and I was floored. I thought it was incredible. Um, the peace pledge that that folks sign, that participants sign, and the four elements of GRIP, so we'll hopefully be able to touch on that. Can, and, and maybe you can help us understand how individuals are continuing with with their journey once they do re-enter once they enter back into the community. And uh, for, for those of us in the field, maybe we can learn a little bit about the structure of how your program is, is sustaining and maintaining itself within the state of California around, you know, financial sustainability and, and expanding the program. Um, but first, before we get into all that juicy stuff, I'm wondering if you're willing, Kim, if you'll speak a little bit about your personal journey into becoming a chaplain. Uh, and the work uh, that you have been doing and how this has not only impacted your community, but how has it impacted you and your personal practice? Yeah, thank you. I think it's so important uh, in terms of story sharing because our stories change over time. So what's the story now in my life to share, right? Uh, So I think uh, maybe just to start, I uh, I grew up in New York City in a very upper middle class kind of intellectual uh, white family that uh, 
was very involved in kind of what was happening in the world. My father was a was a journalist, um, lived all over the world, and I'm very grateful to them that they my parents sent me to a uh, a really progressive radical. Um, elementary school through eighth grade, that the whole curriculum was based on the freedom struggle, on the civil rights movement, labor movement, women's movement, American Indian, you know, that that was our curriculum. That was what I grew up in in school through eighth grade. And, you know, most kids are always ask, you know, ask a lot of why, like, why this, why that? And I was one of those kids for sure that was, that had a lot of concern for the people around me, the issues in the world and in my own school. And so I was asking the question why a lot. And uh, fast forward, I became in my adulthood, I became a grassroots community organizer and was involved in, uh, in the mid, you know, in early 2000s, mid 2000s, became involved through my organizing effort with, uh, it was a faith-based national organizing network and we got very involved in the work around dismantling mass incarceration and so i was involved with both organizing and then training community organizers in california around some of the big propositions that have really led to a lot of the resentencing um you know really moving the pendulum from a system in the state of punishment you know lock them up throw away the key to much more of a uh, moving in the direction of more restorative and, and more progressive um, policies in the state. And I'm proud of that work, for sure. I think we've done some really important work. Um, but I noticed, two, I learned two things in that uh, for myself. One was that as an organizer and coaching organizers, uh, especially uh, uh folks of color and who were directly impacted by the criminal justice system, that um, there was a lot of burnout, a lot of exhaustion and interpersonal conflict that uh, we were in our own communities we were engaged with. And I felt like there was really there was a lot of unhealed trauma and a lack of practices and a lack of tools and space for us to be able to uh, heal ourselves uh, as we were doing this important social justice, racial justice work out in the world. The other thing that I learned or I started to feel was a sense of being out of personal integrity that um, be, from my background in my socioeconomic status, my um, being white as well, that I was in a world where I did not know anybody in prison. I had the privilege I had from my background was that prison and the community of folks incarcerated were invisible to me. And uh, uh, an inspiring, uh, somebody who challenged me, a guy named John Powell from UC Berkeley, basically asked, who is outside of your sphere of human concern? Who, who is outside of your heart? And I realized that even though I was doing this important work around policy change and organizing around dismantling mass incarceration, that uh, that I did not know people who were impacted by incarceration, and I never set foot in a prison. <laughs> so that was happening, and so I quit the organizing and I went back to train. I had been doing my own personal meditation practice for many years, coming out of my own. Uh, you know, looking for solutions to suffering, solutions to issues of stress and and um, and struggle in my own life. And I went back to school to train as a 
Buddhist chaplain. And that got me, uh, I, through that, I started doing one-to-one counseling in my local jail. And also uh, through a community of folks from my Sangha, we would go down to the the state prison uh, in Soledad, California, and offer Buddhist services. And that work was great. I really loved that. I, I, I think there's a huge value in and of just that in and of itself is, uh, I think can be really, um, healing and, uh, and important for the people that I met and, and walked with in both the jail and the prison. And then I met grip (laughs) and, uh, had a really transformative moment of healing myself in that encounter. And um, it was when Jacques Verdun, the founder of GRIP, brought some of his, some of the graduates of the program uh, to my meditation center, to my Sangha in Redwood City, uh, IMC. And they gave a talk and they had a discussion. And at the end, towards the end, one of the gentlemen named Terrell Merritt, who had served more than 20 years for so uh, what i learned is that grip serves um, lifers people who are have been sentenced for serious violent crime to uh, life with the possibility of parole and so he had served more than 20 years for uh, serious crime and he had been you know he was released he was back in the community and uh, at the end of the time he he just offered to the group who were there a genuine apology. He said something like, uh, for those of you in the room who have experienced harm, as someone who has committed, who has, uh, you know, harmed other people, I want to just say to you, I'm so sorry that you experienced that and you didn't deserve it. And uh, on behalf of those of us who have committed harm, I just want to apologize. And it was a moment for me where sitting there receiving that, I experienced a recognition of a longing to hear that kind of apology that I didn't even know that I had. And in that moment, it was this, a moment of healing for me. And um, I thought to myself, wow, I want to be part of that program. I want to learn more about GRIP. (laughs) And it took me a while and I had to do some work to sort of get the attention of of Jacques and but eventually I was able to um, become get trained as a facilitator about seven years ago trained as a facilitator and uh, and then about five years ago Jacques invited me in um, to staff and I um, became his successor to help to really to build and grow the organization and um, been working ever since but what I learned in that and I think what's important connection to sort of what grip does what what it's about is that it really is a mutual process, an interconnected process of healing that happens in GRIP, that uh, both of healing and accountability. It really, it's, it's sort of like the, the Dr. Martin Luther King quoted, quote, I love this quote, that I cannot be who I ought to be until you are who you ought to be. And you can't be who you ought to be until I am who I ought to be. That's the interrelated structure of reality. And I think that's what I've learned and why I still do that, why I feel so committed to doing this work with GRIP is that 
yes, we deliver, we go in as folks from the outside, we go into the prisons and deliver a program of healing and accountability. And, you know, there, there is dharma, there is truth, there is wisdom that, it, that comes from inside that then we, that, that comes out from inside and that can serve the healing of the world as well. But it's a, it's a two-way mutual process. Um, okay, well, thank you. That's, uh, that's quite a journey. And you've brought us now to GRIP and to, you talked about your work as a facilitator. So can you take us inside uh, the program? Like, what's the, the first day? How do you recruit participants? Um, and, uh, you know, I'm interested, I work with, with, um, with folks who are on the administrative side, the security side, and I know that there can be a lot of uh, challenges just around security and movement of people within, you know, these incarcerated environments. And so, obviously, you need to have a lot of cooperation. And um, so, I'm just wondering those pieces. How do you get your participants? What's that first day look like? And and how does that work? Sure. Yeah. So it sounds like there's sort of two two pieces to that. One is how do we work with the institution to get access and work through all that the, the administrative logistics stuff, and then what's the what does the program really look like? So we so we partner with particular prisons. It is really important to have a a, a, work, a good working partnership with the warden and the warden staff and the what's called the um, the CRM, the community resource managers at each prison, and. Uh, those relationships are very important. Uh, we also have relationships with the state, with the um, corrections department, and we are independent. We are not contractors of the state. We have our own independent uh, way of working, but we we develop those partnerships in it, and we choose carefully which prisons we work in because we know how important it is to have a strong working relationship with the folks who do control the movement and the access and the clearance and all of that. So those things are important. We tend to very uh, intentionally as an organization. So uh, the way it works, we have a, a tribe. It's a circle of uh, 30 to 35 students that we select at the beginning of a year-long journey. So it's a year-long program. Uh, we have two models in San Quentin. It's 52 weeks of a weekly class. That's about two, two and a half hours each week. And then as we expanded from San Quentin out to, we're now in five prisons soon to be, we're working on two more, but we're in four other prisons outside of San Quentin and they run on a monthly model. So it's once a month for a full eight hour day on a Saturday or Sunday. And then peer study and practice groups in between that we set up and support them to do on their own in between. And so we have both of those models going. And we also have now that we've been in those prisons several years, we have inside facilitators that we've trained who are part of the facilitation team. And they both, you know, teach in the class, but then they're also available during the time in between the classes for mentoring and support and 
uh, and, you know, help. So that's a really important model. Um, and then as they get out, so our inside facilitators who've already been trained when they get out, we've been able to hire a number of them back onto our staff to be able to be facilitators, um, professional, you know, paid facilitators on our staff who then go back in um, to teach from the, you know, from the outside. So we select, we hold an orientation um, and invite. It very, it depends, and it's sort of changing now. But there's wait lists at every prison. You know, uh, incarcerated folks can sign up to get on the wait list, and then we we usually do an orientation with 50 or 60 folks on the wait list, and they learn about the program, they learn about the expectations. We do quick check-ins to sort of see a little bit of a sense of do they have enough time left on there sentence to be able to complete the program, you know, those kinds of things, select a, uh, a group of about 34 students and, uh, and then start up the next month. Uh, and uh, I could tell you a little bit more. Would it be helpful to tell you a little bit more about the, what the actual program looks like? Yeah. Looks like? Yeah. I think that's great. So thank you. So, so you you bring together or folks are coming off the wait list. They're interested. They know about their word of mouth. Uh, from the inside, there's interest, and uh, so that must be that must be hard to kind of make those choices out of the the folks who are you know are interested. But anyway, so so you've made those choices. You've got your students, your participants, and then then it's another month. Is that right? Until you come back and you really begin. Yeah, yeah, okay. and I will. Yes, the demand is great in the prisons where we've been for several years. Very high demand. I mean, we literally before the wait list started we would have 400 people come to an orientation and have to do a lottery and then, so, you know, to get to 35. So lots of disappointment, which was really hard. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the way it works, we, we are, we call our, uh, we sit in circles. So we have, you know, we're a restorative justice program. So we do many of the practices of, uh, uh, you know, RJ practices. And so we have a circle of, uh, of, students and facilitators, and we call ourselves a tribe because um, really a lot of the work that we're doing is welcoming back in to the human community folks who have been um, have been thrown out, have been left out, have been um, demonized, have been, um, uh, you know, have no sense or, or little sense of um, self-worth and sense of belonging. And so by by creating a strong container of, uh, of, a, of a, a skillful, a healthy tribe. It's like a family that is based on, um, you know, on principles of do no harm and, and, um, and safety that we can re-welcome people back into that human community. And uh, so every week or every month, they're together in, in that big circle. We do some small group work that, um, as well. And there, there's four elements to the curriculum. Uh, there's the first one is um, stop your violence, do no harm. Second one is cultivate mindfulness. Third is develop emotional intelligence. And the last one is understand victim impact. So mindfulness is underlying all of it. And we recognize that uh, there's that mindfulness as the foundation allows people to move into places 
where what we call sitting in the fire that you can then in a skillful and a safe way move into really beginning to look back on your own life, your own histories, the original pains that happened in your own life that then and then start to connect the dots between what happened to you in your childhood and what your coping strategies were to help you survive whatever that was the abuse the violence the alcoholic whatever the abandonment the um death of a whatever it was the um that then whatever the coping strategies were that led you to live a life that and you know that turned into violence um, that led to your commitment offense and then that enables after you've done a fair amount of that work that enables folks to be able to look at the harm they have caused and there's a intensive part around people are expected to write out in great detail their commitment offense their crime story and share it with others and they have the choice they can share it with others in the students in the group or if it's a very sensitive or, or uh, something that they're very uncomfortable with they've never shared it or there's some danger to sharing in some cases they can share to just a facilitator one-on-one -on -one. Um, so we're flexible about that but it's important to be able to externalize the shame externalize the you know what happened so that then further healing and accountability can happen and only after they've gone through those phases do we move to victim impact and understanding victim impact. And at the end of the, um, towards the end of the program, we invite in um, survivors of violent crime, not the, not the specific survivors of the people in our group, but surrogate survivors, right? They will come in. And sometimes it's also children of family members of loved ones who are incarcerated young people to come. And so we consider them also survivors of, uh, it, you know, in this work, and we'll have a day long encounter and dialogue between those who've ca caused harm and those who've experienced it in, uh, in a, what is a restorative justice um, dialogue. So, uh, so that's a little bit of sort of how it flows. Okay, so would you be willing to get a little specific about the naming of the tribe? Sure. Yeah. So in one of the very first classes, one of the things we do is we go around the circle and everybody in the circle will, will say how many years they have been incarcerated. And they add up all time in juvie, time in, um, you know, whatever time they have been in prison. Uh, and, and we list all of those uh, um of the entire circle, and then we add that up. And that number, right now, my, my tribe that I'm in, um, facilitating, the number is 670. Um, there, you know, there might be, I think there's another one right now at Mule Creek State Prison that's 978. So there's a whole range. That becomes the name of the tribe. It's like how many years collectively have we, has this group of, uh, students served. And then what we do is we we have a concept called the moment of imminent danger. And it's the moment between uh, between anger and violence or between craving and using. 
you know, it's like that split second where anger arises and then violence happens. What's that moment in between how much time? So a lot of what we do and a lot of mindfulness practices, how do you extend that space, right? Between anger and violence, how do you create some pause to then make a more skillful choice to make a, you know, if you can take a moment, if you can breathe and you can make a more skillful choice and avoid the violence. But in the, in the imminent danger, what we do in the not in the naming of the tribe is we ask everybody in the moment when you committed the crime that you're served, that you're in prison for, how much time was your moment of imminent danger? And everybody goes around again and it's, you know, three seconds, 30 seconds, 12 seconds, because it's like, what did it take you to cross the line into an act of violence? And, you know, it's like that. So you have 670 years of incarceration and then we add up the moments of imminent danger and it's three minutes and 22 seconds. And people then sit with that and realize for that much, for three minutes and 22 seconds, 670 years of human life, of human potential has been lost. And, you know, we also add, we do things, how many actual lives were lost, how many people died, how many victims. And so we create sort of a a list that's sort of the credential of each tribe where they recognize the harm they've caused the the harm that's rippled out because of that those you know few minutes where they lost their they lost their cool right and so we say you know it's a sobering moment uh, in the circle that we take to really contemplate that and and that's really the basis to say well you know you can't lose another moment like that ever again uh, and that becomes the basis of the work we do together. I mean, the hair on the back of my neck rises when I hear that. I just can, I can't imagine what that must feel like, the intensity of, of emotion and realization. And I mean, it's kind of awesome. Yeah, it really, it, it's a very heavy moment. It's a very yeah. sobering moment. And it's a, you know, kind of a wake up moment. And then, uh, and then we do, it, we do turn it, it is important that it turn into motivation, mm -hmm. and not just complete, you know, depression, right. And so by naming our tribe, that number, it's sort of honoring also honoring the work that the time has been lost and now we're committed to doing something about it. We're committed to doing something different. And so that name also becomes a rallying cry. So it's at the end of every tribe, we have this closing ritual where we all kind of, well, now with COVID, we just bump elbows, but it used to be we would hold hands in the circle and we would call out, you know, tribe 670 for us, by us, about us, huh? and, you know, kind of create this like, um, sense of community. And then out on the yards, we would, you know, guys would tell us that they'd see somebody from their tribe on the other side of the field or something and be like, yeah, tribe 497, tribe 978. Like it, it it's a way to create belonging to mm -hmm. a sense that you're part of something. And over many years, people remember and know. So it also becomes a, a, a sense of connection. Yeah. So 
at what point then do you do you move into and introduce the peace pledge? And can you describe yeah. a little bit about what this peace pledge is? Yes. So the pledge, also very important ritual and part of the practice, is we in the first so the first few months is all about creating a safe container. So how do we build that sense of community, that sense of tribe, that sense of safety? We go through, we create learning agreements together because again, it's you know it's for us, by us, about us. So it's very much needs to be buy-in and and sense that that you're not being told by by the prison system you're not being told by grip how to how to behave like we create it together and uh so confidentiality of course is a very important thing we spent a lot of time talking about what how to build trust and sense of you know commitment to confidentiality and then we have everybody sign a uh peacemaker pledge uh it's 15 um 15 elements to it or 15 um pledges and it's, you know, it's stop your violence, um, respond rather than react, um, take only those things that are given freely, uh, listen to myself, things like that. And we go through it, we read it, we talk about it, we discuss what might be difficult. Um, but the idea is that you're going to sign it at the beginning of the year as a practice year. So you're going to sign it for one year. And we recognize you're not going to be able to do it right away. Um, all perfectly, right? You're going to have a year to practice. You're going to have a year to learn how to do these things, to learn how to live by a, by this peacemaker pledge and learn also how to be accountable to each other. So if you mess up, if you break the pledge, you come talk about it, you share it with somebody else in the tribe, you are transparent, we help, we're supportive, we're a team. And then at the graduation, there's the ritual at the very end they've received. So we have a graduation ceremony that's very important. It's part of the whole, uh, the whole, it's the last piece of the course where we invite in community witnesses and family members come, and usually the warden or prison leadership comes, and we hold a, a, a big, beautiful celebratory graduation. The graduates are in caps and gowns, sometimes for the very first time in their lives. Family members come. Sometimes those family members have not seen or talked with their uh, incarcerated um, family member for 15, 20 years, and there's a reconciliation or a moment of re reuniting right there at the graduation. So it's a powerful time. And what they do, they receive their diplomas, and they also then sign the Peacemaker Pledge for Life. And that's when that is the, another moment of serious commitment where we challenge and invite them to become, to truly pledge to be peacemakers for life. And, uh, and they do it in front of the warden and they do it in front of their family and they do it in front of each other. And uh, there are some, we, I was just speaking with a graduate the other day who he remembers the date that he signed that pledge. And every year he, it's a, it's a date, April 27th, 2017. He knows that's when he signed that pledge. And it's that important to him. So that's another piece of this to remind people, help people to stay on this path. Mm -hmm. Well, that I think that that's pointing to something that you've mentioned, I think twice in our conversation I saw on your website, but this uh, this piece of accountability that you really present that as being integral, and um, 
I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about about that. You know, we can talk about accountability, but you know, how, are we holding ourselves accountable? Is the tribe holding each other accountable? Is grip holding individuals accountable? What is what is that? Because that's accountability is really an internal drive, right? Internal motivation, integrity. Very much, very much, and I think that's so important that we we really try to cultivate and support people to cultivate their own inner sense of accountability because that's the most genuine and that's true, right? And we all know what it feels like for somebody to apologize because they're told to or because they have to or, you know, and we can tell one of the assignments that we do, again, towards the very end because you need to do some of your own work first is write a remorse letter, write an apology letter to your victim and that's something that can be that they can choose to put into what's called their C file, their um, their state file that then the board of parole can see. Um, they, they need to do that anyway before they go to the parole board. They need to write an apology letter and put it in. And so this is a this is an assignment that can serve that purpose. But we're really it's really important that we don't tell folks to do it for the board, right? It's not, don't do it for anybody else, do it for yourself. And I think that's where uh, really this is about, and that's why it's healing and accountability. They're two parts of, you know, of the same thing that until you can heal your own, the, the things that your own resentments, your own hurt, your own feelings of um, fear, hurt, resentment, that you're not going to really be able to deeply apologize, take responsibility, be accountable for that which you've done to someone else. And so they're, they really go hand in hand. And ultimately, uh, we, it, it really is, a, it, 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 the, the, the title of our course book is leaving prison before you get out. And, and, you know, sort of, I mean, it's very much what Fleet Mall talks about is taking radical responsibility for your own life, for your own, your, yourself, your own actions, your own mind, taking radical responsibility and choosing to notice when you're blaming others, to notice when you're putting yourself in the victim place and to choose to take responsibility for that, which is yours. And no more, no less, right? Like that's also like take responsibility for that, which is yours. And that is freedom. That is how you can leave prison before you get out. So don't do it for the board. Don't do it for your family. Don't do it for anybody else. Do it for you. That is what's going to lead to freedom. Great. Well, thank you for offering that and tying those together. I want to share also that as a woman going in, I have chosen to go in to prisons, uh, to male prisons, and sometimes I'm the only woman in the circle, and I work with that. You know, that's part of what we work with, all the projecting. I become, the, you know, the mother, the whatever uh, figure for, for the, the healing process, but it also has been, it, it has been a transformative experience for me as well in my own healing journey, in my own accountability um, journey myself. And particularly, I work with um, in a prison where there's a number of folks who have committed harm, uh, serious violent harm against women and children. 
Um, so they've killed their wives or girlfriends. They have raped people. They have um, committed um, sexual violence or physical violence against children. It's kind of the worst of what our society would, you know, the worst of the worst. Um, and for me to be able to to fully um, br- welcome some of these folks into my own heart and to see to 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 see them as full human beings who are beautiful and um, and uh, responsible and caring and loving beings is uh, ha- has been an incredibly important part of my own um, spiritual journey. And, and it's, you know, we talk about, and guys inside will often say, thank you for coming in. It's sort of rehumanizing us. You're, you know, it's like you treat us as human beings, but in a lot of ways, I feel like it's rehumanizing me Hmm. as well. We all become more human when we can get past that piece around what's your crime and to really see each other as human beings. And that's been, um, a really powerful learning for me to be able to facilitate with folks who've committed, you know, things that, um, uh, that are very painful and, and yet to move forward as, you know, full trusting, loving colleagues. Yeah. It's work that, uh, that includes personal growth, uh, sometimes yeah. in a very big way. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. And for, if there are folks in our audience who are considering and who haven't maybe spent time in prisons or jails, uh, this is one of the most kind of amazing and often uh, unexpected, I think, aspects of working in these environments is our own personal growth and um, really humility and, as you're saying, spiritual growth and humanizing ourselves. Yeah, yeah. This institute is as a model for so many levels of success. And I'm wondering if, uh, if you can talk a little bit about um, just the, the structure and how it has lent itself towards this level of sustainability and the fact that you are growing it, you're scaling it into more and more prisons within California. I don't know if you're looking outside of California, but um, if you could just touch a couple of points there for, for folks who are in the field, other administrators who are working in nonprofits and Sure. One of the things when I became, when I joined staff and became, eventually became the executive director and looking to how to grow the GRIP training institute to be able to deliver a GRIP more to more, um, to more folks, I really wanted to, and I've been a, a sort of a student of how do you build organization that is reflective of and rooted in the 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 DNA of grip. So the mindfulness-based, emotional intelligence, understanding, you know, all of that, like the teachings of grip and the practices and the tools of what we do in the classroom or in the in the tribe, how do we create an organization that is deeply rooted in that, where that's the DNA? And uh, and how do we scale it? How do we start to grow so that we can serve more people? And there's there can really be tension between those two things. I think that having done quite a bit in uh, my background, I've, um, I have been the leader of several other nonprofit organizations, grown other organ, you know, organizations. And the, the challenge of professionalizing work that originally is volunteer or service 
oriented and, you know, at a small scale to professionalize it can become quite problematic in a lot of ways. You start to get into the fundraising grind, the, um, the, the tradition, there's traditional management structures, there's power dynamics, there's skills expectations, there's a whole lot of stuff that can come with the effort to professionalize something that had started as a really wonderful, generous offering by some, you know, volunteers. And so a lot of what I've been trying to do and that we're working on our leadership team and our broader now staff is uh, looking at how do you build the GRIP Training Institute really as interlocking, as three interlocking, with three interlocking lenses. So one lens is the lens of a sustainable infrastructure as a nonprofit. So how do we have the staffing and the money and the management practices that can sustain an organization over time to deliver services? And then there's another lens, which is the lens of the inner work. So how are we bringing the grip? How are we bringing mindfulness in? How are we bringing the expectation or the inspiration to keep doing our inner work as staff, as board members, uh, keep that alive and hold each other accountable. And then the third lens is around justice and equity. And so how are we within our, the organization questioning traditional management structures, creating opportunities to, you know, to shift the balance of power? And then how is GRIP acting in the world in terms of broader movements towards criminal justice reform, um, you know, reimagining the prison system to one that's a restorative model, um, et cetera. And so it's really looking at all three of those, being able to look, you know, every decision, every everything we're building here, we're really trying to look at all three of those together. So um, we've just been like a uh, couple examples of what does that mean? What does that look like? So, you know, with fundraising, we've been inspired. And in fact, we're doing a board meeting next week where we're, we've been reading this book called Decolonizing Wealth. Um, fabulous book, big shout out to uh, Edgar Villanueva who read, who wrote it about really the uh, recognizing or sort of treating money as medicine. How is money healing as opposed to something that you, you know, kind of are on the hamster wheel trying to raise money to like sustain that can become very, um, you can be in a scarcity mindset. Well, how can actually money serve as healing? And so the relationships between people who have and give money and people who receive money, how is that a healing relationship mm -hmm. as opposed to a power a difficult power relationship. Um, another example is uh, with our leader, we've created some leadership pathways in the organization where um, there's traditional management. You can kind of go where you're a coordinator of a program to manager to director, et cetera, sort of traditional management. Um, but we've also created a facilitator leadership pathway where we've recognized that people, especially people coming out of prison, have trained as facilitators, they have enormous wisdom and skill from being inside for many years. That's a huge benefit to being able to deliver the GRIP program. And they might not have as much of the technology skills, the task management, like all of the you know traditional management 
skills and practices, but we have a facilitator leadership pathway as well. So you can move as you're learning some of the more traditional things, you're also being recognized and compensated for the, uh, the leadership and the wisdom that you are bringing. So things like that, that we're working on to create a power with culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then, as I said, we work in partnership with the state. We don't, we're not a contractor um, where we have to deliver on what the state tells us we need to do. Um, we are board set. Uh, um, we are, our budget is such that we, we only, uh, we have a maximum of 25% of our budget that can come from the state, from CDCR, the California mm-hmm. Department of Corrections. And the board was very clear about that because we don't want to become dependent on the state. We want to be able to have diverse funding that we know we can continue to deliver the program, even as the state money goes up and down. Um, so we apply for grants. We do get grants from the state to be able to uh, to deliver the program, but we're also very careful and thoughtful about how we do that so we can maintain our independence. And in terms of growth and in terms of um, sizing up, and uh, sometimes that can be a bit painful and very exciting. So can you give us a little view? And are you looking at other states, moving into other states? So we first, we, we really are committed to California. So there, there are 35,000 lifers in, incarcerated in California alone. And we have a commitment to that population first. Our, our North Star, our big vision is to transform the prison system uh, and uh, to create a, a transformative model, a restorative model of, of how, um, how incarceration, you know, how prison happens. Um, in California first, we'd love to go to other states subsequently, and we do have some ideas and models for how that might happen, but our first commitment is to California. So as I mentioned, we started in San Quentin, we, we moved out. So our first scaling effort was to move out to five prisons and to create this monthly model. We're now, um, COVID really actually challenged us to create some alternative delivery models that we're looking at how do we do things in a more hybrid way? How do we, how do we get the teachings out in different ways? And so we are experimenting and piloting with a couple of new um, like peer-based model where graduates are delivering um, some of the teachings and we're more trained the trainers, uh, more kind of hybrid correspondence model as well. So we'll, we will be taking the next couple of years to pilot some ways that we can then scale to serve many more prisons in California, many, you know, start to, um, start to really eat away at the, uh, or offer more of our, uh, teachings to those 34,000, uh, to start with. And it is a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. And I think we're, uh, there's a, it's a faith walk also that trust that these are, these are teachings that are in demand and that we will find a way uh, that folks inside will be able to access and benefit from them. Well, it's a very uplifting way to, I think, bring our conversation to a close, Kim. Um, And I would like to ask you, if you're willing, if you could guide our audience uh, in a brief mindfulness practice, however you see fit. Yes, I'd be happy to. And maybe I'll preface it with saying that so much of what we do is, even though uh, 
Well, so I'll offer what we think of as a uh, preparation guided piece that we often use in preparation before doing a, a deeper meditation around forgiving ourselves, forgiving those who've harmed us or, or uh, that or, or going deeper into some of the um, more difficult parts of our of our lives and our minds. And so in preparation, we do some practice around just cultivating a sense of self-love. So I think we don't we don't call it that, but I'm calling I will call this a little gift of offering self-love. So uh, if you and the audience would like to just take a moment to, you can close your eyes or just allow yourself to have a soft gaze at a point in front of you and just bring your awareness, bring your attention back into your body, however you are in this moment. You might notice, take this moment to bring your attention to whatever parts of your body are making contact with the ground or the seat. Notice your feet. If you're sitting in a chair, maybe your feet are on the ground and the backs of your legs buttocks, spine might be touching the chair. Or if you're seated on a cushion, you might just notice all of the places and ways that your legs are touching, making contact with the ground and the cushion. And then allow yourself to notice the breath as it comes in and out of your belly and chest area, nostrils. Maybe take a few long, deep inhalations and exhalations. Allow whatever thoughts, mental activity from this conversation, from listening to it or being part of it, whatever thoughts that came into the mind, just allow them to filter down, filter out, maybe melt away so that you allow your awareness to really come back into what's happening right here in this moment, in this body, in this mind. Now I'm gonna guide you in a way to connect to yourself 
that can be a support for any deeper work you may choose to do, either in meditation or just in your day. So first bring into your mind, think of the a time that maybe if you were a parent, you can think of the first time that uh, you were handed your newborn child. And if you're not a parent, just imagine or think to a time when you were asked to hold an infant. If that's not part of your actual experience, just imagine what it might be like. Someone has just handed you an infant child. Become aware of the vulnerability of this child, the need for protection, the softness of their skin, the heaviness, the weight of their little body in your arms. Notice yourself gazing down as you cradle that child in your arms. Notice, allow yourself to be open to unconditional love flowing from your heart through your arms towards this child, unbidden and spontaneous. The wonder of this infant life held so lovingly by your arms. Take a deep breath. Take a moment to connect with the experience of feeling this unconditional love radiating out from you into this child, into this infant. And then when you're ready, you can give the infant back to their parent. And now imagine extending the same unconditional regard to yourself. Imagine holding yourself in that same caring embrace. You may even choose to put your arms around yourself, hold yourself in an embrace if that feels like what your body would like to do. There's a realization that can arise that you are a child of God, Buddha, Allah, Mother Earth, however you are comfortable putting it. Recently, I've enjoyed imagining the, the Buddhist figure, the goddess of compassion, Kuan Yin, Alokitesvara, who has a million arms 
to offer compassion to the whole world. And I imagine her arms just wrapping me in her embrace of compassion. Receive and absorb that love until you radiate with the shine of it. And then repeat this phrase in your mind, breathing in, I feel unconditionally loved. Breathing out, I remain connected to this feeling of being loved. Breathing in, I feel unconditionally loved. Breathing out, I remain connected to this feeling of being loved. And then just allow your awareness to settle back into your body. Notice again, any sensations that arise in the body right now. Notice any changes from when we began. Allow yourself to offer that moment of gratitude. It may the whatever benefits of this Practice this meditation we've just done together. May the benefits be of service to the world. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and come back into the space. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kim. I feel good about myself. At least the next moment. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, Kim, I, we're gonna we're gonna close our our conversation. If uh, folks are interested in more information about the work of Grip and yourself personally, how, how can they learn more? Yes, sure. Well, uh, they first could go to the to our website, Grip Training Institute. And uh, there's a trailer video. There's actually a lot of resources there. They can learn more about GRIP. Uh, we do post, if we do, if we're looking for hiring, we do post um, positions there. Uh, and there's lots of resources as well. So that's probably the best thing. And uh, there's also a way to contact us if there's any questions or folks want more information. Happy to be of service in that way. Great. Well, again, Kim, thank you so much for spending your your time with us today. Really appreciate that. We're, I'm so happy to be part of this summit. Grateful for the Prison Mindfulness Institute for inviting us. And uh, thank you so much, John, for uh, the interview. Thanks, Kim. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.